sometimes when you have a dream or you want to do something, you have to trust in yourself and be your own biggest cheerleader. And that's what I've learned through this process. Hi, I'm Jessica. And I'm Girish. And this is the Destiny Benders podcast, where we explore the impact of international education on the lives of students and professionals from across the globe. It's a podcast for international educators, by international educators, and about international educators. And in each episode, we'll be meeting with Destiny Benders of our industry. We'll look beyond the job title and really get to know the people whose mission it is to change lives and bend destinies. Our guest today is Christina Thompson, founder of Compare Global Education Network and the Director of Partnership Development and Diversity Initiatives at Barcelona SAE. Christina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Hi, Christina. It's really nice to meet you. Thanks for joining us today. So, Christina, it's been a couple of years since I've seen you at NAPSA. Hopefully, we'll be back on the circuit again soon and see you again at a conference. But you know, the podcast obviously is Destiny Benders. We're really trying to learn more about our guests and their journeys. So why don't you kick us off? Tell us a little bit more about yourself, your journey to you know how you got to where you are, and then let's get into all the work that you do. Yeah. So, um, you know, as I said, my name is Christina. My pronouns are she, her, hers. Um, I uh, am born and raised in North Carolina, and I grew up uh, with a large family um, of seven uh, kids running around. I'm number six. I um, am an avid reader. Um, you know, a lot of folks may not know this about me, but I grew up, you know, in a household that where we didn't have television, we didn't have uh, the resources that maybe other households may have had. So my greatest outlet growing up was books. So I had a special library pass in our little local library where the librarian would let me check out as many books as I wanted. And so I had to create my own kind of, I did a lot of daydreaming and like thinking about things and kind of conceptualizing things. And I think that really helped me as I, you know, became older and started working on what profession I wanted to do. Um, but I really did start out, you know, having to really be very imaginative and creative and keep myself entertained, you know, for most folks are like watching TV and me, I was reading, I read Richard Wright's Black Boy when I was 10 years old. And so it was just like, I read the 48 Laws of Power when I was 11. So, you know, for me, it was just, you know, reading has been like a, a big, huge part of my life and how I informed myself and, you know, learned about others. And then another quick caveat, I'll say, you know, that um, growing up the way that I did, um, I also, you know, um, had a computer lab teacher that really pushed me to go to college. And so uh, without her, I don't think I would be sitting here. So mentorship is something I'm very passionate about. I mentor with NAFSA and I have a long list of students and, and professionals that I've worked with over the years to try to give them a little bit of what I had, you know, which is someone kind of pulled me to the side and said, you can do this. That was really important. Yeah. Wonderful. So take us through the journey a little bit more. So you're from North Carolina, you finished high school, and then your computer teacher encouraged you to go to college. So what was that journey? Where'd you go to college? What'd you study? How did you end up in international education? Yeah. So for me, because I had to self-fund my way through college, I actually started out at a community college that was uh, close to my hometown. Um, so I did um, went to college and, and decided to major in political science. So I took college transfer courses there. 
you know, it was a really interesting experience because I'm working with, you know, being at a community college or with other people who have either decided to do an education later in life, you know, or they really wanted to be there for the most part. So it was nice doing that. And then I transferred to UNC Greensboro and majoring political science. You know, um, my first, second or third week on campus, I was looking for a job because I was a work study student. And so I add in the international programs office. And then it pretty much started from there. I'd never heard of international programs, never heard of study abroad. It was a completely new uh, concept to me. Um, I had traveled internationally a little bit. You know, I have a, a relative, my sister actually lives abroad. So I did a little bit of travel before I started the four year stint of my um, college career. And in your job in the International Programs Office, what was that, that first role that got you started in, in your career in international education? What did you do? And why did you get the bug to keep going? Yeah. So, you know, I think probably what sparked my interest is that, you know, because I traveled to Ireland to visit my sister, where she's been living there for 20 plus years now. Um, you know, and coming back, you know, I was kind of just fresh off that trip. I think the global connection, you know, was what drew me to the position. I was actually assistant to the office manager. She taught me everything about how the office runs, you know, from the billing to the uh, visa processing to the uh, advising of students. So being in that office helped me to learn about all the different departments you know, and, and units within the international programs and the inner workings of how it works. And I think that was a really good introduction to international programs because I had an opportunity to kind of see how it functions from the outside. So um, I spent a lot of time uh, liaisoning with Cindy. And then when our director of international student uh, left, uh, I actually filled in that role and was stood in and, and actually, uh, you know, was helping to organize orientations and train the next person in that role was still a good friend of mine. And then, you know, just just was able to wear many different hats, you know, advising students, took care of their insurance. And then when I graduated from school, uh, they had a position open at UNC Exchange Program um, that was actually out of the governor's office at the time. It was over the whole entire UNC system. And so I applied for the job um, and got that role as office manager of that particular organization and really took on their HBCU initiative and traveled across the state of North Carolina to different study abroad fairs and, you know, making those connections with the state. So even though I was an office manager, I think I held a non-traditional role because I was really interested in connecting with underrepresented students and, and institutions, you know, across the state. You went to school to study political science, you said, right? So growing up, I'm sure you didn't grow up thinking I'm going to go be an international educator. What were your goals when you were growing up? What did you kind of envision becoming when you were, when you grew up? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think I envisioned being a politician, actually. And it's kind of a natural thing. So I've always had like the gift of gab or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> I actually grew up really shy, but I learned really quickly that I like being around people. I like organizing and encouraging people, motivating and coaching. And so I thought, you know, why? Politician, maybe, or maybe going to law school. So I actually did a little bit of that. Then, you know, when I did one uh, kind of tester course, at a law school, I said, oh, no, I need to go back to education. Um, so I ended up, you know, getting back and getting my master's uh, in liberal studies with a concentration in, in global studies at UNC Greensboro. And fun fact, uh, I actually did not study abroad in undergrad. I studied abroad in graduate school because, you know, I was one of those students that had to work. You know, I could I didn't have any sort of help from my parents or anyone. So I worked one, sometimes two jobs. And my provost came to me and said, would you like to study abroad? Like, you've done everything. And I wasn't working for the governor for studying abroad before I even went to study abroad. I had traveled, but hadn't had that experience. And so uh, we petitioned for me to have a staff sabbatical. 
And I was the first person, uh, in my knowledge, in, in the history of the university to get a staff sabbatical approved by the president's office. And so that's how I did my uh, study abroad um, program in Germany. Uh, and, you know, really had a great experience there. I'm um, learning about, um, you know, doing a little bit of research in Caribbean literature and colonial history. It's interesting. It's funny because I'm in international education as well, but I just like you all four years of undergrad, I never went on study abroad because I had to work sometimes one, two or three jobs to put myself through college as well. So I totally understand where you're coming from. And so where did you go on that study abroad? You said Germany, but where was that in Germany? And did that have an impact on the role that you're doing currently for Barcelona SAE? Yeah, I think one barrier that I noticed, you know, and this is an interesting barrier because I've tried to break that down in, in my career. But, you know, when I would apply for jobs, it was like, have you studied abroad? And I would say, no, but I have international experience. You know, I've, I've been abroad and that was a barrier for me. So for me, Germany kind of dispelled that and opened up the door um, definitely for me to have an established career in international education. So I think, you know, when I was in Germany, I studied at Mannheim University. This was an exchange partner that UNC Greensboro had. And so for me, it was an affordable option because, you know, the cost was less than it would have been, you know, maybe to go through a different type of organization. And I was able to get a scholarship as well. So the team there was very supportive and excited that I was going to be there. And interesting, when I was there, I was kind of like a liaison to the office. So the students had a problem, I could help them, you know, so it was almost like I was studying abroad as an administrator. A lot of students would come to me and ask me, how do I do this? Or I need help with this. And so I I ended up had an unofficial role on the program of kind of supporting the students, but also having my own experience too. And yes, I think it did, you know, it taught me a lot about myself, especially my identity, had me question, you know, things about my identity that I hadn't really thought of, like, what does it mean to be Black or what does it mean to be an American? And when I was abroad, I definitely wasn't seen as American. I was seen as African. And so it was the first time that I actually really thought, where am I really from? And how can I get more knowledge about that? Students need to know about this too. You know, so when I came back, I wanted to do more work around identity development before they go and just to give them a little bit of heads up that they may encounter some of these questions. Yeah. One, I mean, there's so many things I want to unpeel there, (laughs) but let's kind of start with just you, right? Um, you're right. Uh, access to study abroad is challenging. And I'm, I'm, I think there's a lot of work that you're doing and your peers are doing in the industry. What do you attribute that to? I know the uh, participation in study abroad by American students are pretty anemic. What can we do and what should we be doing to increase that so that they also have the same experiences that you had so they discover themselves and then maybe even create opportunities for themselves? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, um, you know, one of the ways that I did it, my former institution, so for almost seven years, I was director of global opportunities at Susquehanna, which is a small liberal, a private liberal arts college, really unique in that they actually have a Go program or a curriculum requirement that requires all their students complete a cross-cultural experience for graduation. So for me, I was really attracted to that role because I'm like, this is it. You know, everybody goes. Um, but I think, you know, for me, it was also really important to expose students to these opportunities. As I mentioned, I never heard of the word study abroad ever, you know, and so I specifically, uh, especially from the freshman incoming group would recruit students and peer advisors who had never studied abroad to work with me to talk about studying abroad. The peer advisor program was huge. It was like 20 students. You know, we had like a, a, a pretty large group, a lot, you know, about half had been abroad and about half hadn't. And it was a nice mix. 
And uh, I can tell you now that I would say most of the peer advisors that went through that program are now working in the field. A lot of my students are directors of study abroad offices. You know, I was talking to a student the other day that's uh, working for um, a global uh, learning office in, in, in England. We still keep in touch. Um, and she was one of my peer advisors. And so just learning about their journey and the fact that, you know, I didn't really use that barrier of you haven't traveled yet to allow them to work with me. I think that's so important. And so, you know, we really want to create more access and equity across the board, really have to be more open to how we recruit and who recruit and who is the person that gets to have this experience. I think everyone should have it. So, you know, I try to do a micro level of that, you know, at my former institution, and I still, you know, try to advocate for that now. You work for Barcelona SAE, it's a you know, traditional study abroad provider. How did you end up there? So you were at Susquehanna and what happened? How did you end up at Barcelona SAE? Yeah, so I actually had a, um, a baby. I wanted to get back, you know, I was living in Pennsylvania at the time and I was thinking, I really just want to be a mom right now. I don't think I want to work. You know, I just come off from their paternity leave. It was really hard getting back into the groove. And so um, I had already talked to my dean and told him, I think I'm going to go ahead and, you know, step down from this role. And then one of my former students came into my office and she was working with Barcelona SAE. And she said, we're hiring a North Carolina rep. Do you know anyone? I'm like, I might be interested. It would be a way to stay, stay connected to the field. I like that, you know, the, this particular provider, I felt like they were uh, a little bit different from some of the other providers I'd work with, you know, um, smaller, you know, it was definitely a focus on intercultural learning, which I really valued um, as a professional. And I talked to, you know, went through the process and was hired to do the job. So I actually kind of, and when I came into Barcelona, I was an advisor. And for me, I felt like that would be a manageable role for me. But with like then I think six months, I was promoted to director and then took on the partnership development and diversity part of the uh, of the organization. Yeah, it's fun working for small, nimble organizations. Isn't right. It? Exactly. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more. So you're director of diversity initiatives at Barcelona SAE. What are some things that you're doing personally, what Barcelona SAE is doing or just the industry is doing to increase diversity in study abroad? Yeah. So, you know, one of the gaps that I saw, you know, as a director of study abroad on the university side was there wasn't a whole lot of on-site intervention. Schools are doing a great job. Like University of Michigan has a robust pre-departure program, um, like a conference style. And I know a lot of them have moved toward that style. But when you get on site, a lot of the times the on-site team really wasn't as aware of what needed to happen to support these students that are coming in that are underrepresented. And a lot of times, you know, they would just kind of just say, it's okay. You know, they, like I had a student who was studying in Uruguay, I believe, and they they told her, you know, when she kind of reported some acts of discrimination, they just told her, it's okay. You know, sometimes you just have to let things roll off your shoulders. And she was miserable the whole time. And so I just said, that's not good. So when I came in, Barcelona already had like a diversity initiative, but kind of took it and rolled it under the, the premise of TOTOS. And TOTOS stands for the Outcomes-Based Diversity Outreach Strategy. So it's kind of a mouthful, but the the whole point of it was let's make ourselves accountable for the work that we do. So it's an outreach strategy, but we also want to emulate or share those outcomes. So we actually released a report to our partners uh, of how we're doing. And then out of that came the total sounding board. And so having been on many committees, you know, which are kind of sometimes a lot of work, you know, I wanted to make this more of a space to speak out and, and share what we're doing. So the sounding board actually assesses what BSAE is doing, how we're doing, makes suggestions on what we can do better, 
And we, we, we take those suggestions and implement them. One key thing that they suggested to us uh, early on was, you know, more identity-based courses. So we've been working on that. And throughout that, we've had development of new courses in gender studies and the African diaspora, moving away from that singular narrative that I think is pretty common. And the board is made up of university partners. And so it's been a nice way to get the buy-in from our partners and also make us accountable to them. And it's a little bit out of the box, you know, but I think it also pushes us to do a lot more. Um, so yeah, TOTOS has been you know, an interesting initiative, you know, from on-site um, as we tried to move away from like diversity page models. You ever go to, it's nice when you see a diversity page on anyone's website, but I said, let's move away from that and let's do systemic change. So actually all of our students, for example, um, when they come on our program, we have a day trip to CJIS, which is a LGBTQ historic marker uh, in Spain. And we take them to CJIS uh, to study LGBTQ history, but we don't really tell them that. We just say, we're going to do a day trip to CJIS. And on the bus on the way over, we talk about why there's a historical um, you know, significance to this particular city and the history of LGBTQ. And then we have a guide there that can talk them through that when they get there. And then they have some free time to explore it on their own. So we really try to make sure that we're being inclusive just kind of as a standard and not as the end part, you know, which I think a lot of people struggle with. Um, and it's been a really nice, uh, you know, way to think about it, I think, um, you know, and, and encourage our students to be allies to each other. Um, one of the other out-of-the-box things we did uh, is we actually have a training for our homestay families. And so our homestay families go through DEI training, but we actually call it the Homestay Inclusion Toolkit. And so we tell this to parents, you know, the families, this is how you can make your home the best for our students. And so we don't tell them, this is how you make your home good for diversity, you know, we try to make sure we use simplistic language and just tell them, you know, you know, about, you know, how they can use their position as a local to really support the students and, you know, have them walk through case studies. And they've been really enjoying it. And I think it's been a really nice, you know, addition to how we approach our homestay families. And when we started the call before we started recording, you talked about uh, another project that you're working on or an organization you're you're working that you founded, Compare, if I understood it correctly. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how what you're doing led to you founding Compare? Yes. So yes, Compare was a was a pandemic project, as I call it. It was something after the murder of George Floyd. You know, I wanted to do something. And so myself and Adriana Smith, um, works for AFS now, came together with a small group of other folks in the field, and we just started to brainstorm what's missing. And what we decided what was missing was in-depth conversation and action. You know, so there's high-level conversations happening, you know, maybe surface-level conversations, you know, but all of us were a little bit annoyed with the questions that we hear a lot at conferences, like, how do we get more students of color to study abroad? Like, I've heard it every single year. I've been going for over 15 years. So I'm like, okay, how can we elevate the conversations beyond that? Because there are some of us that really want to do the work. And so it kind of started out with me uh, developing a group called Respectful Disruptors in Higher Education on LinkedIn. And so I think there were 75 strong right now, but we're all very interested in doing the work, you know, doing the accomplice work um, that it takes to implement change. And um, and out of that, you know, Compare kind of evolved Um I've been doing consulting for years now, like privately, but I've never really had an umbrella organization to host it. And so, you know, that's one of the um, kind of background business models of Compare. So I have about a, a small group of um, international educators, mostly folks from uh, communities of color who consult with different universities across the United States and 
kind of help them with their DEI initiatives. Um, we do have one model is no more one and done training. So we don't do one-time training, it's a partnership. So if you sign up with us, you know, we're in it for, we're in it for the long haul. <laughs> and so it's really for them to be a liaison to their offices and to really kind of support them and support their DEI initiatives. And then, you know, um, you know, we went on our series developed uh, from the same group of folks. Uh, you know, Andrew Gordon has been super supportive. You know, different folks from different organizations came together and we did a webinar series last spring um, that had, you know, uh, when I counted up the numbers of folks who participated or downloaded the recording, it was um, nearly a thousand people who did it. And so I was like, there's a market for the people who want this. You know, at first I thought it was just a niche. So this spring, um, I teamed up with goabroad.com and we are launching or uh, we we're putting on something called the respectful Dis- uh, the global respectful disruption summit um we have five different sessions throughout the day including a master class on disruption and on how you can actually disrupt the spaces that you need to you know without and in the understanding of what that really means in real time and, uh, we've gotten a great outpouring of support it's been really cool because it's been organic it's been like from the community and I've seen myself as more of just managing, organizing the pieces, but everybody's come together to be a part of this. And the premise of it is to walk away with some actionable things that you can actually do, not just with those actions, but how to do it. So it was a more of a how to change. And I'm really looking forward to it. Um, and, you know, and we also have worked with great, you know, providers who've been super supportive, like Education in Ireland, IES Abroad. So I'm breaking down those barriers too. look, um, you know, let's work together. Let's get it done. And, you know, uh, TOCA, the Green Project, you know, other organizations, the Abraham Agency, we're all working in tandem to, um, to, to provide grants to attendees. So there's no financial barriers for the, for the, for the summit. Anyone who wants a grant can get one. That's awesome. That's some wonderful work, Christina. So I'm assuming it's information is available on your website, compare.org, C-O-M-P-E-A-R.org, right? So let's put a shout out to that one for sure. But, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was I I've, I've known you for years and I've seen you work, uh, you know, so, so much in the inclusion diversity environment. What are the barriers? I know, institutions really want to increase participation, but yet I don't see significant growth in that. Where is the the barrier? What's the bottleneck? What's the hurdle? What's going on? Okay, when can I keep it real with you all? Absolutely. This is all real. <laughs> okay, so I think sometimes we kind of tiptoe around it and we say, well, finances, or we say academics. But you know what the barrier really is, in my opinion? They don't really want to do the work. That's the barrier. And I'll tell you why I've come to that conclusion. You know, you will see, for example, that when I say they, I mean the institutional level. I know there are people within those institutions that really want to do it because I've talked to them. But unfortunately, the way our education system is set up, we cap faculty-led programs at a certain number. We discourage students from applying by implementing GPA requirements and pretty high programming costs. And so we're we're saying we want everyone to go, but we're constantly putting in these barriers because that's the way the system wants it to be. Most universities really don't want everyone to study abroad. I mean, they, it would be a very bad financial model. So how do you work around that? You know, you maybe send off groups of students at a certain year to implement and have this experience. And I guess what's unique about my perspective is that I did come from an institution that found a way to make it work. We actually found a way for everybody to go. I work with demographics of students at Susquehanna that probably would have never had an international experience without that graduation requirement. And so I'm a big proponent of finding ways to integrate 
curricular requirements and have those global requirements, you know, built in for the students. Um, but, you know, the biggest barrier, I think, are the, the institution itself. And so we have to be very creative in how we work around it. And so I think like the Fund for Education Abroad, you know, the fact that they provide finance, they're trying to address that particular particular barrier. Other institutions are, you know, really working with faculty to implement, you know, curricular requirements that support global learning. So I think that, you know, we found some ways to do that. But unfortunately, you know, I even said this at the forum a couple of weeks back when someone raised the question of why don't more students of color uh, go abroad? And I said, well, if we're asking the same question 15 years later, then we probably really don't want to do it. So if you really want to do it, you have to actually go out and implement the change that you want to see. And guess what? Maybe everybody won't like it. Yeah. probably people won't like it. And so if you if you have to do it, you have to be very strategic. And so I, that's why I think, you know, the summit, the idea came from like, folks really want to do this, but they don't know how. And they're afraid. There's some fear around making, you know, systemic change for sure. Especially if you're an advisor in the office, you feel like you have power in that office, but you have the will, you know, or the wherewithal. So, you know, I, I would just ask folks that question. Do you really want to do this or not? Because if you did, let's you know, all right, let's break it down. Let's assume that people really do. Right? I mean, we meet these colleagues at conferences, and you know they're all committed to doing it. Like you said, institutional barriers, maybe. So let's keep it real. Three things you would do if you're a director of study abroad or even an SIO who's really committed to this. What would you do to get your institution moving in that direction? Just three things. Okay, so it depends on the institution. There's a lot of factors, but I'll, I'll speak. I'll speak specifically, maybe about things I think anyone can do. One is that we have GPA requirements. First of all, the students that are applying for study abroad are already in college. So why are we asking them to meet another requirement while they're already, you know, learning and they've taken the steps to be in college? So I would first eliminate all GPA requirements for study abroad. If they're in school and they're not on academic probation, they should be able to participate in this experience. And then, you know, uh, another uh, way I think this is interesting, something I did at Susquehanna is there was a financial barrier. Of course, we know about that. But what we did, we implemented a model where students based on their financial aid package would get a certain amount of aid to support their study abroad program. So if you really want to eliminate financial barriers, you would, first of all, make sure there is some sort of academic component and connection to the student's experience. Because travel trips or, or travels, some people say study trips, travel trips are separate from the academics. And so a lot of students who can't afford that cannot get aid or support financial things like that. So I would try to come up with a financial model that's more inclusive, which which is similar to what I did at Susquehanna to ensure that students who need the aid can get it. And we did this very out of the box. We worked with development directly to raise money over a million dollars to make sure that we had the funding to support students of any background to participate in these experiences. Um, And then maybe the last thing I would do is You know, I think sometimes faculty, you know, they're well-meaning, but I know that they have their own, a lot of universities give them their own autonomy to select the students they want on their programs. And then you end up having the same type of student on every type of program. Well, maybe work with them a little bit and say, instead of that, give me your top five parameters. I'll do it for you. I'm a neutral person. And then I will, you know, make sure that we also have representation across all fields that meet our, you know, diversity initiatives, and and hopefully eliminate, you know, some of that unconscious bias, I think, that we all definitely have. But, you know, find a way to work around those by maybe bringing in non-traditional folks, like maybe bring in someone from career services to help evaluate and help to select the students and then tell them that, you know, challenge their unconscious biases, giving them some really specific parameters for evaluation. We know that at the end of the day, we want the students to walk away with some very specific soft skill development. 
So focus on that rather than the academics of it. Because they're already in college. Again, I always say that, like they're already, they've made that first hurdle, especially unrepresented students. So I think that that's something that I, that I've done. So I'm not, so it's, it's not impossible. It can be done. It won't, and I can say it will be easy, but I think that it's something that anyone can take a look at and maybe see regardless of the institution type. Maybe this is something that they could try. Looking forward. So we have Compare and we have your summit coming up, which is really exciting. What are your hopes or dreams and vision for where that might go in one year, two years, five years from now and in your career as well, along with that? Yeah, that's a really good question. That's a question I ask myself every day. Like, what's next? You know, um, I think, um, you know, I would love, you know, the reason one of the kind of give you a little bit more background is during the pandemic, so many of my friends and colleagues lost their jobs um, in our field of international education. And I said, wow, that's kind of scary. Like, you know, what, but we all have so much expertise in the world of intercultural learning and diversity. So why not provide a platform that allows them to have a subsidized income if they want it? And so that's kind of where it kind of came from. There's another kind of background of, you know, the consultancy. So I would love to build up that directory. Right now I'm working with a small group, but I love to expand that and uh, come up with a training protocol. You know, I do it, you know, kind of on a case-by-case for folks you know, to introduce them to the concept of respectful disruption. And then they can take that with them and, and help to educate others and give them some ways that they can tangibly create action on their campus. So move the kind of utopian ideas into action ideas. And then, you know, I see this being kind of a hub, a neutral hub for anybody, regardless if you're a provider, an institution, an individual, to kind of come together and have some more in-depth conversation, but and take that conversation and actually put it into action and create a little accountability quarter um, within our field. And that's why I see compared. You know, I, I've been working across, I said, you know, provider lines, you know, all these different lines that we develop for ourselves sometimes. And I really want it to be kind of a neutral hub to elevate these conversations. So, you know, in the future, I see more programming. Maybe if this, you know, the summit is something that folks say, yes, you know, that we agree that this is needed in our field. I'll do it again. And, you know, continue to build those partnerships throughout the field, you know, to continue to have these these conversations So and, and actions. Um, so, yeah, so it's, right now it's still, you know, kind of organically happening. We do have like a business plan in place, but I think, you know, we're just kind of letting the community guide us and whatever they say that they would like to see. This is what I'm trying to, you know, slowly implement within Compare. Mad respect, Christina. I, I love what you're doing. I uh, wish you the best with that. But, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you specifically. I know a while back you mentioned the computer teacher who encouraged you to go to college, kind of led you to where you are. We talk about destiny benders on this podcast, people who come and change your lives, people's lives you've changed. Can you think of somebody else maybe in your career journey so far who's been that destiny bender for you? And at the same time, can you think of, I know it might be hard, think of one person's life where you have just changed by the work you did or the influence you had on them? So many influencers to me, maybe I'll talk about a recent um, person, not not recent, known known for years, but uh, someone that I really look up to um, is Keisha Abraham. She really has you know, she started out working with a provider organization, but she went out and she did her own thing and she started the Abraham Agency. And she just was a recent winner of the Forum Award. And so I think that, you know, if she has just been an inspiration to me um, and how she approaches and how she's been out and, and challenging ideas and, um, and, and really 
uh, creating spaces for for different underrepresented folks, especially within our field, to have a sense of belonging. And so um, for me, she's been an inspiration because when I first started this, you know, I'm a single mother. Um, I have a lot of things going on outside of my regular job. You know, I have a son with special needs. He's autistic um, in the middle of learning ASL sign language. So I have a lot of things happening all at once. And so I was just like, can I really do this? I don't know. But she gave a speech at Forum that really, you know, really kind of honed in for me. And she just said, you know, you know, she she did this on her own. And I think sometimes you have to find your own path, you know, and you can't let others things people say, you know, really impact your views. You know, when I first came up with the, the synonym compare, as I spell it, C-O-M-P-E-A-R, like the fruit, because I'm, you know, I wanted to, to, to align with uh, a book that I read by Zara Hurston um, about the, the, the pear fruit being a piece. Uh, I went to a marketing company. They told me horrible idea. No one's going to know how to spell it. No one's going to know how to say it. No one's going to want to do this. And I was like, okay. I was like discouraged. And <laughs> someone else said, don't worry about that. Just do it anyway. And if no one gets it, you did it. You actually still did. You did it the way you wanted to do it. And so I just kept writing with it. And now people see it. Compare. It's not hard to say. And they know how to go to the website. They know how to spell it. So sometimes when you have a dream or you want to do something, you have to trust in yourself and be your own biggest cheerleader. And that's what I've learned through this process. And other people who have influenced me like, um, Keisha Abraham, you know, Dr. Abraham and all the work that she is doing. And as far as someone that I've changed, life changed, um, being a NAFSA mentor and working with uh, my different mentees over the years, Katie Ford, who had, was the director at uh, in the Czech Republic um, for many, many years, uh, is one of my former students. She's now a director at a university in England. You know, she tells me pretty often that I've, that I've really helped her and, you know, kind of pushed her to, uh, as a woman, to really aspire to break the glass ceiling, to uh, go beyond what people think, you know, was expected of her. And hearing stories like that from my former students, I had another student reach out to me the other day and just said, you know, uh, I know I wasn't the best student on your program, but just so you know, like I use some of the things that you told me about mindfulness and being present. And, you know, when I was talking to my students in Cyprus about this, you know, about how to be present, put down your phone, like be in the moment. They were all rolling their eyes, but he was like, I do this now. And it's very, it's like very helpful to my anxiety and, you know, just me being focused and centered. And so, you know, I think a lot of times the things that we do for folks don't always come out right away, but over time they'll get it, especially the students. And to me, that's the best part of what we do, because I wouldn't be doing this without the students. And I really want to, you know, uh, positively impact their trajectories of life. Um, and if I'm making a, even a tiny impact, it means a lot to me. So. And I'm sure you do a huge, you have a huge impact on all these people. Shall we move to our quick fire questions, Girish? Is yeah, let's time? do that. Yeah. So, Christina, we always try to end the podcast with some fun, you know, quick fire round of questions, you know, something to get to know you a little bit better uh, on a personal note. So let's kick it off and I'll start. You're from North Carolina. Um, can I assume that you're a North Carolina basketball fan? By any chance? Yes. <laughs> did you watch the game last night? I did. It was a travesty. Yeah, I was rooting for my team, the Tar Heels. Okay, I will um, ask my quick fire question. I don't know anything about basketball. So my question is about something I do know about. And like you growing up, I was an avid reader. I devoured every book I could possibly come across. So what is your all-time favorite book, if you are able to even pin down one? Oh, very difficult questions. I have so many favorite books. 
I will talk about the book I think that influenced me the most, maybe, especially yeah. earlier in life. Actually, I mentioned earlier, I think, um, the book Black Boy by Richard Wright was a book that I read when I was about 10 years old. <laughs> and for the first time, it was my first time reading a book of an author that talked about some of the oppressive things that happen within the community out loud. And so it made me just aware of some of the oppressions that I would face, but also it made me aware of, this doesn't have to be my narrative. Like I can create my own narrative. And I think, you know, it's a book I read often. I usually go back and read it again um, every couple of years, you know, because I feel like while the story of Blackboard, you know, is, is, a, is a very jarring story and it's an awakening story, it brings me back down to my roots to say, you know, this are some of the things that I'm up against and look at what I can do, you know, around that. How can I combat those narratives against me or, you know, uh, other people who are historically targeted for oppression? Um, and so I think that that, you know, it, it kind of set my tone earlier to want to expire to, you know, help others, but also to teach them like our mind is our most powerful tool and we can be prisons of our own mind. We can let the, the, the majority narrative dictate that, or we can break free and just do what we would like to do and um, be our own cheerleader, as I mentioned. Sometimes that's hard, but, and, and I think that's kind of my foundational book that I go back to very often. Of course, it's like 500 more, but I know we only have a few minutes of time to talk about it. Yeah. Well, Christina, on that note, thank you so much. We wish you the best. We're gonna, we'll watch you and we'll be your cheerleaders for your success as you go about and doing all these things that you're doing. But we really appreciate you taking the time to spend some time with us today. Yes, yeah. thank you so much. It was great to, to meet you and to hear your story today, Christina. I appreciate it. Thank you both for inviting me and I look forward to seeing you soon in person, hopefully. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Destiny Benders. Next week, we speak with Stephen Boyd, Dean of Enrollment Management and Student Life at the Unification Theological Seminary in New York City. Join us next time. Mm-hmm.